When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, the Bible, spirituality, relationships, and I answered them with stories from the Christian tradition and practice. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I try to take the questions of the day and answer them in the ways I know how, from the Christian tradition, from my own practice of of my own spiritual life, and from stories from history and other theologians that have influenced me. So thanks for joining us today for another episode, episode nine of Post-Traumatic God. My question I'm answering today is, what is the post-traumatic God? And we're getting into the heart of what Paul Tillich's theology of what I call the post-traumatic God. He didn't call it that, but I think it's good to pause also as we uh, mourn the loss of life at the synagogue shooting this weekend. And as a faith leader myself, I know the vulnerability of a worshiping congregation and the fear and the the uh, sense of un- the sense of uh, being unsafe in a house of worship is a is a terrible loss for for Jewish people since the Tree of Life shooting for Muslims in, in synagogues and certainly the uh, Christian churches in Sri Lanka most recently, but these are. Uh, recent manifestations of an older hatred and violence that is, uh, I believe, really starting to um, be seen for what it is, white supremacy uh, here in America, homegrown terrorism. And it breaks my heart to think that uh, it manifested so violently this weekend there. And I know that Christians, we have to own our story of anti-Semitism. I think there's been a lot written and spoken about in recent days about our own contributions to hatred against Jewish people over the years. And uh, Sunday at Warrior Church, which is a workout and prayer group that the church plan I'm part of leads, uh, we talked about the reading from the, the story of Thomas when Jesus appears to his disciples. It says the disciples are locked in their room for fear of the Jews. And that's the way it's translated in most modern Bible versions. And of course, everyone in the story is Jewish, except for the Romans. Um, so to say fear of the Jews, it seems to mean perhaps the Jewish leaders or the Judeans versus the Galileans, which are the northern people from the land of Israel. But when we read it today, it seems really anti-Semitic. To, to just single out the Jews. When, when anyone's, when, whenever a, an American uh, becomes anti-Semitic, they talk a lot about the Jews as a group of people that have done, uh, th- that have, um, uh, that are being blamed for, for some sort of crisis in America, just as they were in Nazi Germany. The Jews were blamed for all sorts of things that they had no, no part of. And this kind of anti-Semitism has a way of manifesting in times of crisis and times of hardship and probably in times of prosperity too. Uh, our theologian that we're going to look at today, Paul Tillich, was intimately acquainted with this. He's a World War I veteran, and there were many Jewish World War I veterans. And Paul Tillich was not Jewish. He was German, Lutheran, Christian. But he served alongside a number of Jewish people in World War I. 
who felt like their service in World War I counted for something and would shield them from the attack that they weren't loyal to the state of Germany, that they weren't good Germans. And as Hitler rose to power in the 1930s in Germany and other Nazis um, began to, to really take over, the, that service counted for nothing. The, the, the work they had done as soldiers in World War I didn't count when it came to anti-Semitism. And Tillich saw this in his university context. He was the first non-Jewish professor fired by the Nazi state. They were purging the universities, as, as, as happens in every Nazi regime, regime and fascist regime and totalitarian regime. They, they go through and find the university professors that disagree with them and fire them. That's the easy way to, to start that um, that cleansing or that uh, really, I don't think it's cleansing, but uh, to start that kind of um, um, ideological violence that starts with firing people. And numerous Jewish professors were fired in Nazi Germany in the 30s. Tillich is the first, Tillich protests this and is the first non-Jewish professor fired by the Nazis. Tillich, of course, um, famously, and I think I get to this in the book, in a little more detail, writes a letter protesting his firing. He cites his World War I service, the fact that he won the Iron Cross, the fact that he was in major battles, the fact that he sacrificed for his country. Uh, and he cites these examples as reasons why he shouldn't be fired. I'm a loyal German, he says. I'm a loyal German. He also says that the National Socialists, the Nazis, have, have used some of his concepts. And... Um, I was surprised by that. Of course, he's sort of defending himself to the Nazis saying, you're using some of my ideas. Don't fire me. And yet Tillich had already figured out a way out. He had already worked a deal with Union Seminary in New York City to become a professor there. And as with the Nazi letter in hand saying he was fired, uh, they gave him uh, asylum and refuge. Another thing to consider in this tumultuous world we live in that that so many uh, great thinkers and contributors and hard workers and wonderful people have come to America seeking asylum. And uh, they've been doing this for many, many, many decades. And the, the folks that are coming now are no different in that they are looking for a better life when there is hardship at home. And Tillich is one of these asylum seekers, an immigrant. He barely spoke English at 46 he came to the United States to start a new life with his wife and kids. And they started there in New York City. And uh, his biography goes into that time of his life. But we're going to get into uh, the chapter called The Courage to Be from my book, Post Traumatic God. Uh, and we, we've kind of jumped around because of Easter. And this is not the whole book. Um, legally, I'm not allowed to read the. Uh, the entire book on a podcast because it's copyright and uh, this is not an audio book. So I encourage you to buy the book or get the book or borrow it from someone that has it. Uh, if you want to call me on the phone, I'll read it to you over the phone. Uh, I want you to, to get this book in your hands because I think um, it, it will connect with people that have an experience of trauma and are trying to find their faith after it. Certainly it's true for Paul Tillich. So the chapter is The Courage to Be. In the world, you will face persecution, but take courage. I have overcome the world. 
Jesus, John 16.33. William James, in his classic, The Varieties of Religious Experience, devotes a chapter to the divided self and the process of its unification. Human beings often feel at odds with themselves, especially after war. Craig Mullaney described the feeling described the feeling in his Iraq memoir, The Unforgiving Minute, A Soldier's Education. He described this feeling as being dislocated. After learning of his father's affair while deployed, he entered the half-lit world of the alcoholic. Questions about his own character assaulted his mind, and he summed this period up by saying, I wasn't the me I was before. The combat-tested warrior cannot recognize himself in the mirror. Henry Knox Sherrill was a chaplain in the U.S. Army during World War I. The young Episcopal priest served in a field hospital full of wounded and dying men who came to him directly from the trenches. Many years later, after serving as presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, 1947-58, to 58, he wrote in his autobiography that, upon his return to the States, his mother said he had, quote, grown hard. What she fully meant, we shall never know. What we do know is enough. We know how the succession of dying young men might have created a deep callous in his soul. We know how we grow accustomed to the wounds of war, severed legs and arms all witnessing to the power of weapons most Americans will never hear with their own ears. I know some of this from my time in the Army Hospital. The numbers of wounded young men and women seem to be legion at times. They seem to be everywhere. If I saw someone walking toward me, I would be surprised if they did not have a prosthetic limb. During the days when the details of my wife's affair were coming to light, I grew so nauseous I could barely eat. In contrast to my normal big army lunches, the best I could do was nibble half of a junior Whataburger. I went from a healthy 180 pounds to about 155 in a matter of weeks. By the time I started at Walter Reed about four months later, I developed an obsession with running. I'd run 10 to 20 miles every day. Twice a week, I'd run a 26-mile loop around the Washington Monument. I was searching for something to control in a world that had suddenly spun out of control. As the nausea diminished, I developed an obsession with staying thin, and disordered eating followed. I developed a familiar rhythm to deal with my anxiety. First, I would run. If I couldn't run because I was injured or had already run, I would drink beer. If I couldn't drink because I was on duty or visiting my teetotaling parents, I would binge eat. There were times during my night shifts at the hospital where I would take a break from responding to emergencies by eating a box of Girl Scout cookies that had been donated to the hospital. Walter Reed received these boxes of cookies by the thousands every month, and the chaplain's office always kept a well-stocked closet of them. With each bite, I would despair and then take another. With each bite, my anxiety would diminish as the pain in my stomach grew. Sometimes I could barely get out of the chair when the pager went off for the emergency call. The next morning, I would fast, vowing never to do it again. I would run a long distance, still exhausted from the all-night shift, vowing never to do it again. All my resolutions not to drink were made after a night of drinking. All my resolutions to avoid binge eating were always made after a binge. I hated being this way. I hated myself for my weakness. I never told anyone about it except one therapist. She offered that I say, I love myself, every time I took a bite of a cookie. That worked for a while, 
then it didn't. My shattered relationship with myself began to heal as I explored Paul Tillich's idea of existential courage in the face of doubt. His idea is expressed in his most popular book, The Courage to Be. In this book, Tillich explores the concept of courage. He writes that the supreme example of courage is a soldier. He knows this because he was one. Courage is the ability to look into the abyss of death, and that is to experience the threat of non-being. Non-being is another way of saying meaninglessness. Tillich looked into the abyss of death in World War I when he listened to the moans of the wounded and saw the wasted landscape of, quote, iron, fire, and blood. He looked into the abyss of death when he preached a sermon in a blasted church in France in 1916. He spoke to his soldiers, saying, We are all deeply terrified by the abyss which opened to us. This was the existential abyss he read about in Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. He read this book in a French forest during that same bloody year. While many of Nietzsche's ideas were embraced by Tillich, most notably his insistence that the God often portrayed by popular religion does not exist, Tillich rejected Nietzsche's self-reliance and will to power that was, quote, used and abused by the Nazis. The last line of Tillich's The Courage to Be is instructive and makes the rather dense book worth reading. The courage to be is rooted in the God who appears when God disappears in the anxiety of doubt. I'll read that again. The courage to be is rooted in the God who appears when God disappears in the anxiety of doubt. God disappears in the abyss, in the anxiety of war or homecoming. In that anxiety, we doubt, and that is the opposite of courage. Doubt isolates me from others and from my true self. The angrier, I, the angrier I became, the farther I went from anyone who tried to come close to me. How could I get close to anyone when I hated myself? Tillich's admonition to have courage in the face of death, doubt, and despair resonated with me. I wanted this courage. Jesus said in Matthew 16:25. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Doubt tries to preserve life at any cost, even the cost of despair. Courage understands the reality of death and the threat of non-being and embraces life. For me, I found courage by embracing the forgiveness of my sins. For Tillich, the forgiveness of sins means acceptance. As an existentialist theologian, he spent a great deal of time describing humanity's existential estrangement in the second volume of his Systematic Theology. From this detailed description of estrangement, he moves to describe how Jesus the Christ conquers this human estrangement. The four Gospels describe how Jesus conquered sin and estrangement by resisting Satan's temptations in the desert and experiencing anxiety in the garden the night before his crucifixion. For Tillich, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are forever linked in this bond of interdependence. For Tillich, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are forever linked in a bond of interdependence. These interdependent events are both reality and symbol because they happen in time and history, but they also have a greater function in salvation. Tillich acknowledges that the New Testament places a great deal of emphasis on the objective side of these events and elevates them to universal significance. 
the cross and resurrection form the symbol of the unity between God and humanity that cannot be broken by the ultimate estrangement, death. The atonement is, above all, power over the enslaving structures of evil and the healing of people from their existential estrangement. The atonement reconciles God and humanity and is dependent on the merit of Christ. St. Paul's term, quote, in Christ, is marked by, quote, faith instead of unbelief, surrender instead of hubris, and love instead of concupiscence. This is regeneration and repentance for Tillich. His thinking was very different from the interpretations of the atonement I heard as a child. Tillich taught that when a person accepts the reality of God's acceptance through Jesus Christ, the person then is able to be, quote, in Christ, that is, in the new being. The objective reality of the new being precedes the subjective participation in it. God's grace comes to us before we feel it. For a traumatized person whose feelings are askew and unreliable, this would be a relief indeed. Although Tillich emphasized the objective work of Christ that creates the possibility for humans to experience unity with God, he is better known for his emphasis on the subjective feelings of acceptance rather than the more objective justification in heaven. He saw the phrase, justification by faith, largely responsible for the Protestant distortion of seeing the possibility for self-salvation based on knowledge of doctrine rather than being grasped by God and faith. The personal encounter with God and the reunion with God are at the heart of all genuine religion, he said. Personal encounters with God were the subject of much of my early faith life. I wondered how other people experienced God. I wondered what they heard or what they felt in those moments. Recently, a Vietnam veteran told me he was sitting in church on Christmas Eve when something happened to him. He told me why Christmas Eves were difficult for him. He lost eight friends one Christmas Eve in Vietnam during an intense rocket attack. The rockets hit his artillery position, a position he was supposed to be at, but the last minute was called away from. The moral injury was palpable as he described the 30-plus years of hating Christmas Eve. But on this particular Christmas Eve, seated there near the window of a church, he saw something out the window. Here the man proceeded to pull out his iPad and show me a picture of the empty church sanctuary. He said, I was sitting right there. He looked and he, he said he looked out the window and noticed the light from the windows extended to the tree line. When he looked out that night, he saw all eight of his friends standing there, looking at him through the window. He said, you know what they said? We're okay. It's okay. That's what they said. I had heard and felt a version of the same message, it's okay, before, on a balcony, in the dark days that followed my return from Iraq and divorce. The following is an excerpt from my memoir, Death Letter, God, Sex, and War. On the balcony of the apartment, I looked out into the night. Cars drive by on the road below. Each one is headed somewhere. Only the parked cars lack a destination. Like Abram in the Old Testament, I look up at the sky and question the God who promised me a good marriage. I tell him I had damn near done everything I was supposed to do, and now everything is a goddamn mess. My voice rises from the whisper of my mind, and I speak. I yell at the master of the universe and tell him I didn't like what happened. 
I taunt him for how he turned his almighty back on me when I needed him most. I rail on. Don't you care that she left me? Don't you want us together? There's nothing but silence. I know that answer, but I can't believe it. I know that God loves my ex-wife as much as he loves me. I feel most betrayed by this thought. Whose side is God on in a war? Whose side is he on in a divorce? Whose side is God on in the Super Bowl? Then the questions break. I whimper, sob, then burst into a full-on ugly cry. I weep at the silent stars and the fingernail-shaped moon. I hope all the clocks will stop and die with my soul. When I stop weeping, I hear a voice. The voice is silence. It is the stillness of the unconditioned. It is a voice that is unconditioned like a horse standing still. There is Kierkegaard's royal coachman seated above him with a whip, poised to strike at the slightest movement of the horse. It is the universe, or God, or the great ground of being herself that has a message for me. The voice says, You can leave her now. The voice is not my own. My weeping has been heard, but God has surprised me in the worst way imaginable. I don't believe him, and I walk back inside. Up until this point in my journey, I thought God wanted me to stay married at all costs. I thought God believed in the institution of marriage and was depending on me to keep it humming along. I didn't know I was dealing with the post-traumatic God, a God who cares little for institutions, but does care in some incomprehensible way for me. I've heard the same message a few other times in my work with veterans. I have heard them describe that feeling of peace that overwhelmed me on that dark night. It seems to resonate with people in crisis. It is, after all, what we say to the dying and the wounded. It's okay. It's okay. Even when it is clearly not okay. These are the words we whisper to our children when they cry. And apparently, sometimes, the words the post-traumatic God whispers to us. In contrast to Tillich's description of the forgiveness of sins as existential acceptance, Tillich's contemporary in Switzerland, Karl Barth, emphasized the eschatological nature of our salvation in Jesus Christ. In his sermon, Saved by Grace, Barth says, To be saved does not just mean to be a little encouraged, a little comforted, a little relieved. It means to be pulled out like a log from a burning fire. Bart describes how unaware people are of their sinfulness and how they are on thin ice in regard to destruction and judgment. He is like his spiritual forefather, Jonathan Edwards, who illustrated a sinner walking on a rotting canvas in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Bart describes humanity walking across a frozen lake at night, unaware they are on a lake at all. At any moment, the ice can break and we will be in the eternal judgment. Bart's version of salvation is more like what I heard as a child. You can see how a new approach to these concepts could give me a new vision of my own salvation and the salvation of the world. Tillich's theology certainly grasped me at the right time. I was finding theism hard to believe. At least I found the theism of my childhood hard to believe. As I reflect on these theologically tumultuous days, I have come to the conclusion we may need different theology in order to handle the present trauma of our lives. This does not mean that this particular theological view will last forever. 
like a tourniquet who may stop the blood flow for a while, thus saving the limb. I certainly needed a different theology during those first post-traumatic years. I wonder if this was what happened to English mathematician turned philosopher Alfred North Whitehead. While working in London as an academic mathematician, Whitehead's son Eric was killed in Tillich's War, World War I, while serving in the Royal Air Force. Shortly after his son's death, Whitehead turned from mathematics and began to, and began to work on philosophical problems. Very little is known of Whitehead's motives at his turning point in his life due to the intense privacy he maintained throughout his life and the fact that his papers were destroyed by his wife after his death in 1947. My thoughts here are purely speculative. What I do know is that the loss of a teenager in war has profound effects on parents. I've seen it with my own eyes. At Seminary of the Southwest in Austin, Texas, I took an elective course in process thought and read Whitehead's Process and Reality, all the while thinking of the writer's grief for his son lost in war. Was this the philosophical problem that changed his life's work, his life's course? Who can know? It is amazing that the mind can do what the mind can do when confronted with a problem. Whitehead's problem was as old as Job. How could this happen to me if there is a God in control of the universe? God for Whitehead changed. The God he described in the final climax of his difficult and confusing, for me and many others, book is not conditioned by the normal theological rules Christianity has often confessed. He rejects Aristotelian concepts of God as the unmoved mover, as well as Christianity's eminently real God. A transcendent creator whose will must be obeyed is the fallacy which has infused tragedy into the histories of Christianity and Mahometism. I do not know the specific tragedies he is referencing, but those who were touched by World War I could not escape its theological implications. Religion for Whitehead is just an imitation of Caesar with all his pomp and authoritarian grandeur. In contrast to the theological system of his day, the God in his book Process and Reality can exist in some relation to the terrible suffering in the world without being the cause of it. Even God is affected by the temporal processes of this world. I can't explicate all of Whitehead's theological insights here, but I do hope to suggest that profound loss and suffering can lead to new conceptions of God, and that this is what people often need to do when faced with trauma. John Cobb was an influential pioneer in early process theology. When answering the theological question of a recent tragedy, the Sendai earthquake, he answered with process theology in order to comfort. Quote, the suffering of the people in Sendai evokes compassion all over the world. God is present in that compassion, and even where human compassion fails to reach. God is not in control, but God's love upholds us always and everywhere, and especially here and now, where suffering and need are most acute. We should expect post-traumatic people to find a post-traumatic theology that helps them in the moment of their greatest need. That Tillich's understanding of salvation was different than Bart's is clear. Tillich, in his sermon, You Are Accepted, defines sin and grace for his secular, philosophically-minded audience in New York City, I might add. He begins with an apology for using such archaic terms. Indeed, sin and grace are rarely used outside of religion. 
Among the few exceptions are chocolate desserts, sinful, and banking, and dancing, grace period, and smoothness on the dance floor. But Tillich insists on using these terms because no other words can convey the reality of what needed to be expressed. Indeed, even today, the subject of moral injury is simply another way of saying sin. Moral injuries are the things done and left undone. They are the things we confess we have done against God and our neighbor. But for Tillich, all other substitutes are shallow. Instead of tossing the archaic terms, he seeks to rediscover their meaning in a way that explores the depth of human existence. Like Bart, he affirms that all are sinners, but sin is, for Tillich, separation. This separation is separation from oneself, from others, and from the ground of being, God. This separation is universal, and the separation results in suffering. Both Bart and Tillich are very detailed and dramatic in their descriptions of this suffering. Both point to the destructive suffering that is often self-inflicted. Tillich, however, points out that we know why we suffer. We suffer because we are separated, and we are separated because we exist. Quote, existence is separation. Before sin is an act, it is a state, he wrote in Shaking the Foundations. For Tillich, the remedy of human estrangement is found in the experience of St. Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus as the Christ appears to Saul, soon to be Paul. In the moment of his greatest separation, Paul found himself accepted in spite of being rejected. Grace overwhelmed him. For Tillich, this means more than the belief God exists or that, that Jesus is the Savior or the Bible contains the truth. Grace must strike us at the moment of our greatest despair and discouragement. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted, he wrote. When acceptance is accepted, then reunion is possible between the separated parts of ourselves, others, and God. Tillich's existentialist emphasis on psychological salvation gained him acceptance with many intellectuals of his day, if only for a short time. This sermon, when compared to Bart's Saved by Grace, demonstrates the place of Jesus Christ in Tillich's theology. Tillich refers to Jesus three times in this sermon, in contrast to Bart's urging his hearers to look to Jesus Christ in almost every paragraph of his sermon. Whether there is too little of Jesus in Tillich or too much Jesus in Bart matters little to me. What does matter is a cryptic statement Bart made to Tillich that Tillich was Quote, still fighting the Grand Inquisitor. Tillich responded many years later that Bart was right to point this out. Was this a piece of Tillich's trauma seeping into his vision of salvation and God? Did Bart, with his keen insight into the human condition, see something disturbed beneath the dignified German theologian's persona? This exchange between these two giants of the 20th century, in my mind, illustrates the very different perspective of Paul Tillich. This post-traumatic perspective was formed in the first and only turning point of his life, World War I. Today, I'm glad Tillich described salvation this way, because it gave me, in the state I was in, an invitation to stay in fellowship with Christ and his church. Without this link, I do not know where I would have gone. Although so many details of our lives were different, our biographic kinships, Biographic kinship around a few experiences brought me close to his words and thoughts. 
His words spoke to me in my post-traumatic abyss, and they brought me back into God's presence. Since I met Tillich and his books, I have found more courage to live life in spite of the snagging pull of despair, doubt, and suicide. I had to take courageous steps to move toward health and community. Some of these steps were walking back into church. The courage to be is rooted in a God who accepts us in our estrangement. I felt this acceptance in the church that found me after war. Well, that was a big chapter uh, of the book, and I hope you can uh, pour over it in print. Um, again, this is one big commercial for the book, but um, I wrote it. I kind of laid it all out there, how I experienced Paul Tillich and his theology. And I'm deeply aware of Paul Tillich's dysfunctions with life deeply aware of how, how his ongoing brokenness manifested in the lives of others. And we've talked about that in previous episodes. But on this concept of existential courage, I think this is the real strength of the existentialist theologians. Is they really they really grasped what what secular America and I I can't speak for anywhere else, but I'm imagining continental Europe as well and, and probably people that were thinking in other places as well. They really grasp that when you look into the abyss, as Nietzsche said, the abyss looks back into you. They really grasp that idea that when you when you look around at the world and you see, man, I don't see any miracles. I don't see anything miraculous. I don't see magic. I don't see hocus pocus. As much as I like those TV shows, it doesn't happen in the real world. In fact, what happens in the real world is that people experience what we call senseless tragedies. And it was, that was used of the shooting in the, at the synagogue by one of the sheriffs at the press briefing. This senseless tragedy, the senselessness of, of, of violence, the senselessness of humans su- struggling and suffering. When you look around, you add them all up. We're looking at if you live on this earth, you experience extensive suffering. And the only thing we have to look forward to is this abyss of death, which is non-being that we really can't say what happens to us after we die. There's no way to scientifically prove that. There's no way to prove that in any way that would make sense, like the ability to, to prove that. Um, you know, we, we'd sooner buy a used car from a used car salesman than buy the arguments of life after death in a materialist society, in a secular and non-religious context. And Tillich's world was full of people especially in New York and in the intellectual, um, really uh, exciting days of, of his time there, he realized this, that it was really, really hard to look around and say, man, we're all going to live in the clouds someday strumming harps. Uh, in fact, it was much easier to just say, you do what you can here, you try to make the best you can, and then we die, and we experience non-being. And so Tillich was trying to, to write for the, these, his friends, people he deeply loved, and saying, is there a way to understand the Christian story uh, when you've looked into the abyss, when you can't stop looking into the abyss? And Tillich's experience in World War I seems to be that abyss experience. He quotes that in his sermons while he's in theater. He's preaching to the troops who are fighting in the war about this existential abyss. So it's something he carried with him from his very youngest days in his late 20s, early 30s, all the way through his writing. And so I think it's a critical concept that that helps people to say like, 
yeah, when you really look at it, it is pretty bleak. The abyss is very large and there seems to be no bottom. And this is precisely the moment when God disappears, that the courage to be shows up in God appearing. God appears to us in the contemplation of the abyss because God has looked into that abyss too. And God, in the story of Christianity, has sent his son into that abyss. God's own son experiencing the abyss in the Garden of Gethsemane, experiencing that that question of non-being in a really deep and profound way. The struggle of that is something Tillich saw there and said this is a highly relatable um, aspect of Christianity to the, the world that, that was around him. So the, the task of this kind of Christianity, this kind of Christian expression, was not to somehow get people to believe stuff that was supernatural, but to get them to realize that God was in them, with them in this in this struggle. That God was right here with us in this struggle with the abyss and with this existential dread uh, that certainly harks back to Kierkegaard, who was the first, uh, maybe not the first, but the most influential theologian on these uh, thinkers of the 20th century. And I named one of my sons after Soren Kierkegaard, which is pretty cool. Um, at the time, I was a young man, and uh, it was a it was a really like godsend of a name because when you name a child, you're like sending a spaceship out into the cosmos. And um, I'm really happy about that. What I see now is a very juvenile decision to come up with a cool name. But I would love Soren Kierkegaard. His um, books really helped me in college when I discovered them in the library of Appalachian Bible College. They had a stamp on them that said the school did not endorse the views that were inside the book, but I guess someone had donated the book, and there it was in the library with a big stamp on it saying, don't believe anything in this book. I heard about Kierkegaard in class and how bad he was and dangerous he was for his his relativism or something. So I made a beeline to get his book and say, I've got to read this. And uh, they're discovering this book, Fear and Trembling, and others have had a deep influence on me, and I'm thankful I found him in, in that time of my life. And I think writers can find us at certain times of our life in a really profound way. So I'm really thankful for the writers that found me. And I hope that um, the writing you do and the, the speaking you do, whether publicly or privately with people, can find people in the right moment. And uh, I like what George Herms says. George Herms is an artist in, in L.A. who my wife has um, worked with over the years. And one time someone asked him about his inspiration for his art, and he said, I'm just the clarinet. I'm just the clarinet. The wind blows through me, and I try to hit the right stops every now and again. I think for, for those of us who want to encourage people in their existential crises, uh, we're just trying to be the clarinet. The wind is, is God's spirit flowing through us, and we try to hit the right stops now and again. Um, hopefully we don't block the wind with our own uh, ideas of how a clarinet should work. So don't block the, the wind. Be the clarinet this week as you encourage people to, to, to find your presence as they face that abyss, to find God's presence as they face that abyss.